Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. We dedicate this entire episode to the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft with a special tribute to Meatloaf. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to another episode of Everything Compliance. This week, we're going to take up the Microsoft purchase of Activision Blizzard. We're going to take a deep dive into it from a variety of angles. We originally uh, set this podcast. We were going to do it to some songs from the Bee Gees. Unfortunately, this morning, we found out that uh, one of our big heroes, Mr. Meatloaf himself, passed away last night. Uh, so we're not going to substitute the BGs, but we will have a separate meatloaf tribute as a part of today's offering. So each person will ha- has had a song assigned to them along with their topic. So Matt Kelly, of course, the coolest guy in the compliance, the only BG song that would be appropriate for you is Massachusetts. So with that, how do you see uh, Massachusetts and the Microsoft purchase of Activision Blizzard? Uh, I have no comment about the Bee Gees. I have to admit, I am not familiar (laughs) with that song. So I will just speak for the perhaps younger people of the world who know that the Bee Gees are a band, and that might be about it. I'm going to just dodge and weave on that. But since Massachusetts State is a heavily tech industry, I am thrilled that we can talk about this big tech merger. Tom, I wanted to actually talk about two things with Microsoft buying Activision. Um... I think this is going to be a fascinating case study of how the Biden administration handles big antitrust issues. And then the other big question for Microsoft is how Microsoft is going to handle these corporate culture issues. And I think that they're going to have some real challenges there. But on the antitrust, um, I, as much as we all talk about this merger with Microsoft buying them for what, $68 billion in cash, it's a huge merger. It's the biggest one, all cash merger ever. Uh, I think it's the biggest Microsoft has ever done. Let's all remember, I am not necessarily sure this merger is going to happen because I think the antitrust concerns around it are considerable. And if you are the Biden administration, you have to think that You can't do nothing with the antitrust review of Microsoft and Activision. They would have all sorts of political cronies, opponents, critics on both sides, uh, probably saying, what are you doing? Just rolling over. You would have that from Republicans. You would have it from like Elizabeth Warren, who is no fan of big tech. And that would really put the squeeze on the administration. So they're going to do an in-depth antitrust review And Lena Kahn at the Federal Trade Commission and the head of the antitrust division at the Justice Department, they have long talked about being more muscular with antitrust. Uh, Even just this week, there was a speech from the Justice Department talking about a more invigorated look at merger guidance and how they're going to review all this. Well, okay, folks, here's your big chance to review this deal. But I am still also confused about what would you actually require of Microsoft from an antitrust perspective? Maybe you could impose some sort of big structural change, 
like, you know, you're going to divest this unit or you're going to spin off that other unit, except that begs the question, well, exactly what would Microsoft need to divest that would make sense? Uh, and I don't know because the operating segments of Microsoft are almost perfectly split into three equal sections of Microsoft Office software, uh, cloud computing. Well, you know, you're not going to spin that off. You're not going to spin off the Office tools either. That's the core of the business. The cloud is nothing but growth. Uh, and then the third division is this other personal computing division that includes the Windows operating system, core business, again, not going to sell it. Uh, and it also includes the gaming division. Well, they just are trying to buy to bet on the gaming division. So you have that Bing search engine. I suppose you could spin that off because nobody actually uses it. And then what? Google buys them, maybe? No. Uh, it withers on the vine and Google is still a big king player. Like that doesn't really do anyone any favors. So I don't know what the structural reforms would be from an antitrust perspective. Maybe you have a whole bunch of procedural constraints that you could put upon Microsoft about how you would promote gaming, how you would promote these games versus other games that people play on the Xbox. That could get very complicated. Maybe they have a monitor. And I know that Jay's going to talk about monitors and, you know, would an antitrust monitor work? I don't know. But all of this leads me to think the simplest, easiest way for the Biden administration to address all of the antitrust concerns legally and politically like when I look at it, the simplest way to solve this problem is not to approve the deal. So let me plant an early flag saying, folks, I don't know that this is going to happen. I know Microsoft is confident. I'm not sure. I also did want to take a few minutes to talk about the cultural stuff, because I think that is formidable that the culture at Activision has been a mess for a long time. Everybody knows that. In fact, the way that the culture blew up in scandal depressed the share price. Well, that's what led Microsoft to close this deal in the first place, or at least try to close it. And so how would Microsoft try and change a very dysfunctional corporate culture of a merger target? Let's assume we all get over the antitrust thing and somehow this merger does happen. Um, what would that actually mean? What would you have to change? And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. You would probably need to change, number one, who is actually in charge of the unit? So I think Activision has already done a fairly okay job on that because they fired a whole bunch of people lately. Uh, there was a report that they fired at least several dozen, I think around 40 or so people since the harassment scandal came to light last summer. There's another report going around that I think is still unconfirmed that they might have fired as many as about 70 managers and Activision is 10,000 employees. So maybe there's more to go. Maybe there's not. But um, they've fired at least several dozen, possibly many dozens of managers who were somehow ineffective or participating in or complicit in the harassment culture. Leadership change there. That's good. Other big leadership question. What do you do with Activision CEO Bobby Kotick? Um, I personally think he would be nuts to stick around. Also, he's going to make a boatload of money on this deal, hundreds of millions of dollars when he cashes out the share price at that should take over uh, proposed price. So I think Bobby Kotick would probably leave. He should leave because he has cast this enormous dysfunctional shadow over Activision. Um, and if you were going to stick around, this would be the kind of deal where you would have your merger targets CEO wind up on your board. That's 
you would see that at a lot of mergers like this. That's not happening here. So I think Kotick already knows he's gone. And there's a lot of people who are already saying that, although nobody will confirm it publicly last time I checked. Okay, leadership changed. Good. What's next? Um, I think you, if from a compliance perspective, you'd want to think about how do people get rewarded at my company? What are the pay uh, policies? What are the incentive compensation policies? What are the promotion policies? And that's also where Activision allegedly was really short on good results. There were a lot of talk about women and minorities who were shunted aside or into dead-end jobs or didn't get the plum assignments. That's another big culture change that an ethics and compliance person would need to think about if you acquire a troubled business unit. How do we equalize pay and promotion? How do we equalize our incentives? How do we make sure that's fair and equitable? How do you show that to people? Um, I know that the proto-union at Activision, I don't believe they actually are a union, but there's a very active group of Activision employees on Twitter who kind of pretend like they're a union. Uh, They're already trying to negotiate better things like arbitration clauses when you have a complaint. Um, You know, you wind up trying to make uh, changes like that that people can actually see and accept and say, all right, yeah, culture's changing. And then the third big thing would be along those lines, how do people complain at the company? How do they get arbitration done? How do they have a whistleblower hotline that is secure? How do you have investigation protocols that are effective? How do you have anti-retaliation that works? So if I'm looking at this, you know, and I was thinking, okay, troubled business unit that we've acquired, how do we change the culture? Who is in charge? How do people get rewarded? How do people complain? You have to make sure that all three of those things are working well. And then you can start to really convince the employees that the culture is changing for the better. But like I said, I think the bigger, sexier question is, is this really going to pass antitrust review? Because I don't know that that is. But that's what I had. And I'm sorry I flubbed on the BGs. Don't even get me started on meatloaf. But that's what I have for this week. Karen Woody, what do you see from uh, maybe the SEC perspective or uh, anything really from the antitrust uh, component that you see um, that might be problematic for Microsoft? Yeah, it's a good question. I think Matt actually handled a lot of the really, I think, salient points about the antitrust review that's going to be problematic. I mean, I, I push back a little bit in the sense of, you know, there still might be a big marketplace out there. Sure, this is a massive conglomeration of big tech, but is it a monopoly? I mean, is it something where there's no other space in the market? And maybe I have not brushed up enough on my antitrust doctrine to know that that's probably not the only question for an antitrust review. But um, I don't know. I could see I could see this, you know, certainly at least having a fighting chance, I would think. Um, it's at the FTC and even uh, the DOJ. I mean, as far as the SEC is concerned, the SEC doesn't need to really get involved in this, except that, you know, it's an interesting conundrum in that Activision maybe is dodging, to some extent, some of its SEC investigation by hiding under the coat of Microsoft going forward, which will be an interesting situation. However, in order to effect this merger, there have to be reps and warranties. And from my time practicing law, that usually was how 
at least the internal investigation group got a lot of work, which was either this merger is going through or this bankruptcy is going through. Can you run down that all these reps and warranties are legit or correct? Can we say this? And one of those reps and warranties will be, you know, we have a culture of compliance. We have no outstanding potential investigations or liability risks. And so obviously, because both of these companies are public, we're not in the scenario like a SPAC merger where the SEC is coming in to talk to you about how much due diligence you've done under the guise of protecting investors because now this company is being traded and we didn't know much about them. We know a whole lot about Microsoft and Activision. So it's not maybe as much of an investor protection issue other than, you know, what are they writing in their disclosures and is Microsoft aware of what they're buying into? And of course they are. I think the price point probably reflects that. Um, that's why, as Matt pointed out, Microsoft came after Activision because of its, I think, these troubles and knowing that maybe it was getting a deal on this. Um, and so in terms of where the SEC will fall, sure, I guess they'll take a harder look now at Microsoft, knowing that this will be part of its portfolio if this goes through. But, you know, I mean, Microsoft is, it's you know, it's, a, it's massive. There's nothing there that I think that the SEC is going to be able to challenge too much because we know so much about it. There's so much disclosure behind, behind both of these companies. So the additional risk is how much more needs to be said. And always when more is said, there's you're opening yourself up to more potential misleading statements or omissions. So that is the sort of maybe, you know, slice of SEC involvement I see in this. But I think Matt's right that the first major hurdle will be on this FTC and DOJ antitrust review. Thankfully, or not thankfully, depending on which side you're on, Microsoft is, you know, a repeat player at the FTC and the DOJ antitrust. I mean, I, you know, they've been in there for years. So they probably know those people better than their own employees. So maybe they, you know, maybe that'll help or hurt. Who knows? But um, that's my sort of quick take on it. Um, and then I think Matt's also right about the culture, given that the culture is really the basis for the SEC investigation and the fact that there was language in the filings of Activision that said the culture was not what it turned out to be. Um, you know, can Microsoft fix that? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, in terms of liability exposure, it'll, it'll turn on what they say about it and how, how honest uh, they are. But I don't know if that's um, something that will will move the share price on it, really. Um, so, you know, it's something we know so much about both these companies that I, I don't know if there's, a, you know, a lot of room for the SEC to rabble rouse about saying we didn't know something or you're hiding something for this. So that's my two cents. I think my BG song was Staying Alive. And I think, uh, as I said, uh, I think Activision, if they can pull this off, will be staying alive and gets the uh, the blessing of of Microsoft being the you know kind of big brother that that ushers away some of their problems. <laughs> Karen, one of the things I've been thinking about is the potential carve outs for settlements of either state or federal uh, claims, whether it be in the uh, workplace harassment, diversity or or other areas. you think we could see specific carve outs that Microsoft says, Activision Blizzard, you will be paying these these fines, if any. Uh, we've seen that a couple of times in the FCPA world. Is that 
also happen in the SEC world? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's a great play. That's a great play for Microsoft to say, you know, this we're going to clean house. Uh, we're going to carve this out. That's still Activision's problem. We don't want to, we don't want to buy that part of Activision, but we want the rest. So it's a good, I think, even just political play. And I think that makes sense in a, in a way if they can divorce sort of slices of Activision or characteristics of Activision in order to look like the white knight here. That I think is something I, I would think would be on the table. Jonathan Armstrong, uh, honoring the BGs with your white shirt today, duly noted for our audience uh, who is watching us live. Uh, and your song, of course, is How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Uh, but what do you see from either the UK or EU regulatory uh, perspective? Uh, both Matt and Karen have talked about uh, some of the U.S. regulators. Uh, in terms of big tech, Microsoft is not usually at the top of the EU regulators uh, aiming right now, but they certainly have been uh, in the past in the United States. So where do you see that from your perspective? Yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, I think it's almost like a, a four-step test, I think, where I in the uh, on, on the Microsoft team here. And I think that we've got to remember, haven't we, that this ain't a U.S. domestic deal or it isn't purely a U.S. domestic deal. And I think we might get surprises in uh, outside the U.S., even if they can square people in the U.S. Let's just look at Japan, for example. One of the big losers in this deal might be Sony. The Japanese antitrust regulators raided uh, Microsoft as long ago as 2004. Microsoft are on the uh, are on the radar in Japan, and even if Microsoft can lobby away the U.S. authorities, is their lobbying power greater than Sony's in Japan? I'm not sure it is. So I think you end up with a four-step test, and some of this is repeating themes that, that Matt and Karen have said already. I think Karen's right that your first step is due diligence. And were I Microsoft, I'd want some sort of enhanced due diligence process here. So what makes their world go round? You have to look not only, I think, at the sort of stuff that you conventionally do in due diligence, things like policies and procedures, but you also have to look at practices as well. It's those three P's that are critical, not just the two. And why this is challenging is that even from my experience, the very best firms at M&A are often okay at doing one and two. They're very poor at doing number three. And Jay might have ideas in terms of putting boots on the ground and monitors, etc. But it definitely requires gray hair to do that piece. And if big M&A firms are using the triangle model of the gray hairs at the top doing very little work and the worker bees at the bottom doing all of the work, then that creates real difficulties. And we've seen it before when corporations have acquired problem organizations that, that due diligence has been uh, ineffective. So if I was Microsoft, I'd want to be enhancing that uh, pre-acquisition due diligence. And let's hope for their sake that they've done a good job uh, of that already. And that 
to repeat is going to have to be senior lawyers, senior compliance professionals, not something that you that you form off to the worker bees at the bottom, however talented they are. I agree with Matt that I think the next step is then to look at antitrust concerns. And I think the real uh, worry here will be any form of Xbox uh, exclusivity. So you may even get a deal passing the regulators first time round. And then when some of the commercial agreements get stitched intra-company, it could even come back again with a different opinion from antitrust regulators. And in some respects, that's the worst of all worlds for Microsoft because the deal's cleared. It's done. It's a cash deal. They've paid the cash out. And then the regulator says, hang on, that thing you're planning on doing, you can't do. And then they're left with with a sort of lack of integration. So um, I think you've got to, again, look at uh, Microsoft's history here. There is a concern that, you know, PlayStation and others could be harmed. There um, are already complaints, I think 31 complaints currently before the European Commission for alleged uh, anti-competitive practices by Microsoft relating to OneDrive. There have been complaints to the European Commission about Microsoft since uh, 2004 again. Novell, remember Novell. Novell, I think, were the first complainant to the Commission. yeah, in 1993, there was a $794 million fine for Microsoft from the commission. That fine was upped to $1.4 billion in 2008 because they hadn't done what they said they would relating to the 1993 fine, it seems. So, uh, so Karen's right. The good news is that Microsoft and their team will be well known to the competition authorities in the EU. And the bad news is that they are well known to the competition authorities in the EU. Here, of course, Brexit adds complexity because uh, pre-Brexit, the European Commission would have taken the lead on this, perhaps delegated work down to in-country competition authorities. But Microsoft would have got one clearance or not from the EU as a whole. Now, of course, they will have to speak to the UK authorities as well as the EU authorities. And why is that problematical? Well, that's problematical because there is already a UK Competition and Markets Authority investigation into Microsoft. They're still trying to get clearance for their acquisition of uh, nuance. And that's just gone through what's called the phase one decision, which sort of means that the CMA have decided that there is a potential distortion of the market. They're going to have to crawl uh, over that. So we're likely to see this almost be stitched on to an existing investigation. And that's probably worse than an ab initio knock on the door, because there's already, if you like, an assumption that anti-competitive practice has gone on. So then my third phase, if I can get through uh, antitrust, is looking at things like integration and divestiture. Here, I think I've got slightly better news. My, uh, I'm 
I'm not big into gaming, but from what I understand it, the portfolio has uh, gaming products that appeal to different demographics. So Candy Crush, for example, I think is known as whatever the term for silver surfing gamers is. Those annoying people who sit next to you on trains and move fruit around. Well, that's a different market to the market that Microsoft's going for with Xbox. So there is a potential deal to be done there. So uh, it would be a rude thing to say uh, to push off the wrinklies somewhere else. But there are potential ways, I think, that Microsoft could splice and dice the acquisition, which might get some uh, some comfort for them. So, so can a loser ever win? Well, first of all, I think there are going to have to be all sorts of concessions, not just with antitrust regulators, but other regulators as well. Data protection authorities can block this deal. Any, uh, I think some people have said in the past that any corporation who tells you a deal isn't just about the data, that probably means it's just about the data. And we have had German regulators, for example, in the past, try and block the uh, the Google double clock double click deal, saying that they had inherent powers under what has become GDPR to block data transfers and therefore to block the merger of the two corporations. So even if you can get an antitrust clearance, you could get a privacy regulator prohibiting the sharing of data. And that's part of the business model for the whole deal, to get data on Activision gamers, presumably into getting them addicted to Xbox instead of whatever platform they're using at the moment. So um, so I think there are all sorts of issues to go at. Culture we've discussed uh, already. There's obviously this whole culture as well between what might be perceived to be hip and trendy gaming brands and uh, odd to say, but what's perceived as very much a old school corporation in Microsoft. You know, it's a bit like, I don't know, trying to play, um, uh, you know, a right on game with your granddad. And I think there's that, not only the bad potentially toxic culture of the acquisition, but also the sort of fuddy-duddy culture of Microsoft that will play through people's minds. And that whole difference between, uh, you know, I've had gaming clients, and often your approach is to get the game to market quickly and fix it. Now, Microsoft have been accused of that in the past with their products, but they've tried to cure that reputation by saying, we iron out the bugs and then you, Mr. Corporation, can take our stuff and it's good to go. So there's all sorts of compliance issues if you're changing to a game development culture for corporate applications as well. There's always going to be that tension uh, within the business. And then maybe just one other point, and I could make many more or two other points. First of all, don't estimate issues like FCPA. Microsoft, again, has had uh, challenges with its Hungarian operations. Uh, there are at least allegations that some uh, titles might be bought in different ways in 
the gaming industry versus other industries that some uh, uh, some deals might be done with distributors that are different from conventional businesses. They'll have to be alive uh, to that. And then I think additionally, the whole data piece has other challenges. Back in 2000, the FTC intervened in Disney's acquisition of data relating to the collapsed Toy Smart. That was a whole mess. Disney ended up paying money into the bankruptcy to destroy the data. And there was still an FTC investigation into that. My worry is that unless you've got the right you know, GDPR logic in place to move the data from this entity to the other, uh, that could lead to fines as well. And then uh, I guess my final thing. Um, so if you can get through all of those hurdles, how do you make things good with the regulators? So um, how do you stop the rain from falling? Well, I think the main thing really is to try and get ahead of this. Look at the investigations that are ongoing. And as Karen said, hopefully you've got a list of those from the due diligence process. And then you're going to have to develop a plan for approaching those regulators, explaining what you're doing. So you're going to have to look at similar regulatory interventions. What were the orders that the regulators made in those cases? Which of those do we think that we're prepared to concede and then have an honest discussion with the regulators to say, we think you're going to ask us to do one, two, three, four, and five. We agree. We'll do it. We're the new owners and things will be different from now on. So if you can do that, you can mend a broken heart, but there's an enormous amount of work involved from getting from A to B to C to D. So in simple terms, a four-step plan from me, Tom, there's a whole load of work involved in that. Matt, do you have a comment or question for Jonathan? Well, you know, as I'm listening to Jonathan, a, a question has popped into my mind. Let's say this merger does go through and everything is integrated. Does that mean I could invite coworkers to play Call of Duty while we're on a Microsoft Teams meeting? Because that, I think, would actually be awesome if we could pull that off. But I, I did just want to say two points. Uh, number one, we should remember that for all of the hurdles we're laying out, Microsoft is very confident it can pull this off because it has agreed to a $3 billion breakup fee to mm -hmm. Activision if this all does go sideways. So clearly, they're pretty confident that by some way or other, they're going to be able to make this go through. But as I was listening to Jonathan talk about the privacy and security concerns, which I think are also considerable, I still fall back to, so what would the Federal Trade Commission actually do? Like, what's going to be the mechanism to allow this to go through? And we're going to watch what you're doing, because we should remember about 10 years ago, I think it was, the FTC signed a deal with Facebook after a big privacy snafu. And maybe Jonathan could read me in on the, the details. I don't remember all of it, but it was around 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. Facebook agreed that it would have an outside audit every year of its privacy efforts by a big four firm, which then started producing these reports every year saying Facebook's privacy eff efforts were excellent. 
And they kept on producing them right as Facebook wound up with that enormous data privacy snafu with Cambridge Analytica and user data being spilled into the 2016 and the Russian operations using Facebook in favor of Donald Trump and all this stuff. And they pay a $5 billion fine. So that didn't work. Yeah. So what exactly are we going to do here? You know, if we're going to have an outside audit, how do you make sure that's effective? Because it wasn't effective with Facebook and this is going to be bigger. Um, you know, do you have a outside compliance monitor? And I, I don't know what the mechanism would be, which brings me back to my point that, you know, maybe the simplest solution for the regulators is just to say, we're not going to do it. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty I think you have in Europe is if you look at the data piece alone, you've not got to persuade one regulator, you've got to persuade 30. And and the issue with, yeah. with DoubleClick and, uh, and Google is there was one a vociferous but fairly minor regulator who just said, I'm prohibiting the deal. Now, eventually... I don't think he managed to prohibit it. But I think now some of the German regulators, for example, they can order, uh, even if the deal is done, they can order that Division A can't transfer data to Division B. So you could end up acquiring like a, you know, a steel hulk when you thought you were acquiring a battleship because you can't do anything with the data. And I think that's almost more worrying than the deal not being done at all, as I say, because you've waved the cash goodbye, but you can't get those integration efficiencies. You can't do the cross-selling uh, that, that you want to do. So um, there's an enormous amount of effort to be done, I think, to look at who the regulators are who are likely to object like that, and then to have a strategy to get all of them on board. But that is, like, um, as the French would say, a real exercise in Aliment de Canard. Uh, Jay Rosen, uh, you have to love somebody. But the question uh, I think the whole gang wants to pose to you is, what could a monitor do? Uh, Matt uh, and Karen have both talked about this, and Jonathan as well. What could a monitor do from the antitrust angle? What could a monitor do from the compliance angle? And after Jonathan's uh, session, what could a monitor perhaps do from the data privacy angle and, and roll that all of that up into your BG's assignment? The song was entitled To Love Somebody. And I think what this is all about is to make some money. And uh, Microsoft in the past has been very um, opportunistic. When the other guy was in charge and he didn't like TikTok and wanted it to be spun off, Microsoft was Johnny on the spot and they were there waiting to embrace TikTok with open arms, but it didn't happen. And um, one of my questions before I answer the big uh, potpourri that you asked, Tom, is that um, you, this came to light in the summer, early fall. Uh, in December, I guess Microsoft began negotiating actively. And my question is, is how much information could you have found out in three or four months that you're going to say, I've got a $3 billion breakup fee here? So either they know something because they're inside players, or the question is that, yes, the stock was depressed by 30%. Let's go in there and do it. 
And now here comes the questions of all the function of a monitor, how a monitor can help. And in one of my prior lives, I was in middle market investment banking. We did a lot of M&A. And one of the things that I noticed is the lawyers and the accountants, they love to rush in. And for what Jonathan's always talking about, they love to pull the data. And they pull the data on sales. Every company has this great hockey stick growth pattern that, oh, we got to buy them. We got to pay 3X. We got to pay 5X. But the question is, is how do, when, when you're doing due diligence, they tend to run out of steam when it gets down to be doing cultural due diligence. diligence. And when you're doing ethics and compliance due diligence, because there's really nobody who has a seat at the table that wants to make that work. The lawyers want to cross the T's and dot the I's and get paid. The accountants want to get paid, but nobody's looking at cultural assessment. So if we bring the construct of the monitor to bear right now, Microsoft's just, uh, rather, Activision Blizzard has just been under all this scrutiny. So if I'm Microsoft, I'm going to say, well, do I want to believe everything that the lawyers that Activision Blizzard are telling me? They've been embedded. We've already got a company that's out there in the press. People are worried about the statements that are coming. We had our friend, the CCO, who we picked apart several months ago. We've got Bobby Kotek, who supposedly hasn't told the board things, but he has told the board and they still trust him. So the first thing I would do is figure out who are my troops that I'm sending in to do due diligence. And this due diligence, I might want to forecast it as a way that what happens in a monitorship. And what happens in a monitorship is that the regulating body, whether it's DOJ, FTC, FCC, they bring a monitor in to ensure that the company is going to comply with what they said they were going to do over the next 12, 24 to 36 months. So we were once in a case working for a telecom company that acquired another telecom company, and they had to make sure that they provided lifeline service to low-income customers. So we were brought in there to be the monitor to make sure that the settlement was upheld. It wasn't anything criminal. It wasn't anything specious, but it was we were there to roll up our sleeves. And what we ended up doing is we secret shopped this company and we called up in English and we called up in Spanish and we wanted to get those lifeline services and we wanted to see whether or not the client would provide those. So the first thing I would do is that I would figure out maybe discount the due diligence that's already been done. And then I'd want my own law firm in there. And then as part of the law firm, I want somebody who can do this cultural assessment because you can't wall off these charges. Uh, if you're going to move forward, you're going to say, we have a clean company. We have the best of breed ethics and compliance and cultural programs. You can't make that statement now, especially after what we've seen in the last four to five months. So I'm suggesting that you take that, what the monitor does on the tail end, and you move that to the front end of what you're doing from your due diligence perspective. And then you've all given good um, you know, good prescriptions about how to deal with antitrust and how to deal with the regulators. But it's going to be, I think, you being Microsoft trying to grow. And how do you find the people whose voices that you can trust enough to bet $3 billion on? The scope of the legal obligations that you've heard bandied about here uh, overlaid with really a cultural uh, component. 
does it really make sense to bring in a monitor to look at culture or is that part of ongoing due diligence or can you actually try to remediate during this process as if you were under some type of investigation where you're trying to fix things before the end of the day final penalty? Yeah, I think the the last way is the way I would choose to go that there, believe it or not, there are situations when affiliated monitors gets engaged proactively when the client is not under uh, under the microscope of a regulator. And in that point, what we try to do is you're not bound by anything. So if we want to focus on dealing with the cultural aspects, when we eventually get to the regulator, we can say, We've been do, looking at the ethics and compliance here for the past X number of months. We've been be, we've begun to mitigate certain factors, and here's what you do. And what happens more than not, more often than not, is when you go to the regulator and unasked by them, you present what you've done on your own. That is usually at least good for one feather in your bonnet, if not more. So that proactive path that you outlined, Tom. I think really needs to be done. And you know the regulators are going to ask for that. So why not be proactive and why not do it ahead of time? And, you know, that's what happens. I was talking to a colleague before and we were talking about, you know, when monitors get put on FCPA matters. And they were talking about this is a large, big AMLA 100 firm. And they are saying when they begin to do their investigation, they immediately begin to do remediation at the same time. And so if you just imagine, imagine that time is money, by pushing that up in the process, said that way for you, Jonathan, um, you are in a better position with the regulator. Ultimately, you're going to save money. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a better company. And that's what I think is the one I want to leave with is I don't know how quickly you can take this culture that's at Activision Blizzard and just cure it because it's now under a different name. I think they're really get going to get under the hood, get dirty and greasy, figure out where these people were, get them out of there, but more importantly, set up this program that going forward that you can have a speak up culture and that you can have certain things, certain rights to not being retaliated against. So uh, at the end of the day, that's where my focus is, is, it's not that a rose will smell just as sweet by any other name, but I want to see real, hard, reflective change. So I'm going to slide in in this uh, episode and talk about the board of directors. And my song is Jive Talking. And the first lyrics of Jive Talking is, of course, it's just your Jive Talking. And I hope that it's not the Microsoft board of directors who are Jive Talking because they have a very important role in this. Uh, Matt touched on, uh, Matt and Karen uh, both touched on several critical elements from U.S. regulatory angles, but I want to speak maybe about uh, the board's obligations here. Number one, uh, this is an all-cash deal. That tells you Microsoft had $79 billion or $69 billion in cash. And uh, when you have that sort of money, no matter how big your company is, you need to have a specific and special board committee overseeing this. So what's the role of the board in the oversight? Uh, Matt really, uh, I thought, hit it right on the head when he talked about Activision Blizzard is a distressed asset, and they're a distressed asset from self-inflicted wounds. So the 
part Jay said about uh, being about the money, it's absolutely spot on. Microsoft saw, I think, a great opportunity to step in, create the number three gaming company in the world if they pass regulatory scrutiny at a distressed price, even with the $3 billion breakup fee. I think they see this as, a, as an excellent value. I can only think that the price is actually going to go down, Karen, because of uh, some of the carve-outs that uh, they're going to have to have, Activision's going to have to have for um, the regulatory settlements that they come up with. But the board uh, needs to move from having a special board committee on the purchase of this to actually overseeing the change and investigate the investigations leading to remediations as well. And Jay talked about what could be done on a proactive basis. I think that the Microsoft special committee running this needs to be actively involved and uh, whoever on senior management or uh, compliance or finance or whoever is reporting to the board, they need to have uh, consistent meetings with the board and the board needs to be involved really in the steps ongoing because this is so high profile. We've talked about the myriad of regulators literally across the world who are going to be looking at this from a variety of angles. So uh, I just hope that the board of directors is fulfilling a, a special obligation and that they're overseeing this and then, of course, when we get to the closing, I hope that the, a special board committee continues uh, to be a part of the integration of post-acquisition integration of everything that we've talked about uh, in this um, uh, podcast so far. So the board has a very big role here. Um, if you look to the, the one acquisition that failed because of a lack of board involvement was the, the most famous in my mind is HP and um uh, now I've just forgot the autonomy. Yes, autonomy, uh, because the board was not actively involved in that uh, for a variety of reasons. And so that after the integration or after closing, rather, the integration of this is going to be absolutely critical, both from the legal, uh, cultural uh, and pra commercial practices perspective. So uh, if uh, the Microsoft board is listening, and I hope you are, I hope you are actively involved in this, not simply from the price point, uh, but from all of the issues that we've raised in this uh, podcast so far. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Everything Compliance. And now, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, we have a special segment where we're going to pay honor to Meatloaf. Uh, fellow Texan Meatloaf, uh, whether you go with the formal Mr. Loaf or the informal Meat, uh, he was a big part of my rock and roll life uh, starting in college and all the way forward. And my tribute's going to be, of course, to Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Not simply because it's the... Uh, uh, Purient song or song for every purient teenage boy who may be a little bit older now, but because uh, the first time I played that song, I told my dad to listen very carefully because there was an insert from Phil Rizzuto where he called a bass runner uh, in the context of a boy and girl in the backseat of a car. And uh, when it got to the end uh, and there was a play at the plate, somebody was going to maybe score a home run. 
Uh, we don't know what happened, but my father had one of the biggest grins I've ever seen. And uh, that struck me uh, for several reasons. One, the greatness of Phil Rizzuto. Number two, the greatness of the song, but also that, you know, we boys, we just never grow up. So my memory from uh, Meatloaf is Paradise for the Dashboard Light. Jay, what do you have for us? Uh, since I'm one of those folks who do remember Meatloaf, uh, I'm going to go with, you took the words right out of my mouth, a.k.a. hot summer night. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes! I bet you say that to all the boys. I have a couple memories of Meatloaf in 1975. The Rocky Horror Picture came, Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. Meatloaf was in the cast in London. He played Eddie. And there's a point where uh, you talk back at the screen and everyone says, what's for dinner? Meatloaf. The other Meatloaf record uh, memory is from 1978 when he first appeared on Saturday Night Live. And to actually see that big, sweaty ball of human singing passion, I didn't know what to make of it, but I knew I liked it. So here's to you, Mr. Loaf, uh, singing up in that band in the sky. Mr. Armstrong? Yeah, I've uh, I've a sporting memory for Meatloaf. So some of you will know uh, my hometown club is Hartlepool United. And I've been to uh, Hartlepool have a checkered history, both on and off the pitch. They have a couple of moments of glory. One uh, when the great Brian Clough was manager. But effectively, I've been to at least two final games when the money ran out and they were meant to be uh, the last game before the club's extinction. And in the last 15 years or so, you, some of you will know that Meatloaf professed to be a Hartlepool United fan. And he would carry around with him a Hartlepool United mascot, which was something of his comfort, it seems, when traveling. So whenever we've been in financial difficulty for the past 15 years or so, the word has gone round the ground, don't worry, meatloaf will save us. So the danger, I think, for all Hartlepool United fans today is that our plan B, if you like, has gone. But I'm inspired by the fact that Wrexham, a club in broadly similar financial circumstances, have been taken over recently by Ryan Reynolds and Rob uh, McElhenney. So my joy is that I get to speak uh, about this on this podcast. We all know how many Hollywood A-listers listen to this podcast on a regular basis. So if any of you are out there, give me a call. You can be the new meatloaf. Matt Kelly, what do you have for us? Well, you know, as much as I do appreciate that Meatloaf was a good artist, uh, I was not the hugest Meatloaf fan, but I like what he did. I'm just going to share a certain segment of the population who's out there. This is what they are experiencing with it. And this memory happened just this morning with me when I was chatting with a very accomplished compliance officer in their mid-30s. And I said, did you hear the Meatloaf died? And they said, who? Folks? Maybe we're going to feel a bit old, but there's a significant portion of the world out there who just didn't know who he was and had to go and look him up. And that's all I have for you. 
Well, Karen, uh, what do you have for us of a memory of meatloaf? Well, I wanted to highlight, which uh, Jay did as well, which Meatloaf was not just an incredible singer, but he had a number of acting credits to his name, the most you know famous of which is Rocky Horror. And so the song that I always think of when I think of Meatloaf, other than, of course, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which Tom already took, um, is the Hot Patooties Bless My Soul from from Rocky Horror. Uh, so, I, I mean, Rocky Horror is obviously formative for everyone in every generation, I think, at different times. Um, but the thing that is funny is that uh, my memory is that my father, whose birthday is on Sunday, every year, no matter what, no matter what the scenario is, we have to have meatloaf on his birthday. Uh, that's just a known thing. That's birthday order, birthday dinner order. So I will be having that on Sunday with my parents, and uh, that song likely will be in in the background because you have to play Meatloaf. <laughs> well, that's great. And now we are on to our fan favorite section of shout outs and rants. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Yeah, I have a shout out to Tracy Emin. So for those of you who are not familiar with her work, she's the sort of if you like the former enfant terrible of the uh, Brit art scene, her works include My Bed, which was a bed which uh, exhibited various activities that had gone on in the bed. And uh, another work called uh, Everyone I Have Ever Slept With, 1963 to 1995, which was a tent embroidered with the names of various uh, individuals. Now, uh, Tracy Emin has had a, a hard life and some uh, difficulties in her past, but she's been very generous both to charities and to the nation. I was up in Scotland uh, just before New Year's uh, to see a really stunning sculpture that she'd just given to a gallery in Scotland for being kind to her whilst her works were being exhibited there the stat, uh, th there was a bid i think of 75,000 sterling for this sculpture but she'd given it to the gallery for free and in 2011 she gave a work to the british government called more passion it's a neon style uh, a neon sign installation it was said to be one of the favorite works of david cameron and whilst it was given to the government art collection, it was assigned, possibly after David Cameron's intervention, to number 10. And it's been displayed on the wall uh, in number 10. Uh, Tracy Emin explained the work by saying it was meant to promote a happy atmosphere like funfairs, casinos or bars. But this week, she's asked for it to be removed from number 10. Uh, she said... Uh, that Boris Johnson's government did not require any encouragement for a party. And she said, it's not a political thing, it's a moral, ethical thing. So when you're, being when you're the prime minister of a country and you're being lectured on morals and ethics by a Britpop artist, that to me is the time to go. And we've had 
alliteration throughout this podcast, with the BGs being a famous example of alliteration. So I've got another example for you now. Bojo, just go. Matt Kelly, what do you have for us? Uh, Well, I have something that is probably closest to to a rant, but this is actually a rather sad and serious lament that I just wanted to call the compliance officer's attention. It's the case of a missing girl in New Hampshire, seven years old, by the name of Harmony Montgomery. Police have been searching for her for the last four weeks or so, and she actually has been missing since 2019 and had been unaccounted for because... This girl's drug-addled mother was ignored while she tried desperately to raise alarms about her missing daughter for months, and nobody took her seriously. Uh, The the girl, Harmony, uh, bounced back and forth between the mother and the father, who uh, is a man named Adam Montgomery. He is currently under arrest for assaulting his daughter at some point. He is not cooperating with regulator or with police uh, and other law enforcement about where his daughter might be right now. Uh, he, in the past, had a history of drug dealing. He was arrested in connection with shooting a man in the head in Massachusetts in 2014. This is the man who wound up in custody of, the, had custody of her daughter because the mother, Crystal Sori, was a drug user. She was homeless. She had her own criminal record. And because of that, when she realized in 2020 or so that her daughter hadn't been seen for months and had no idea where her daughter was, but knew the father was absolutely not a good person to care care for her, uh, she started telling police. She started telling social workers. She started calling schools to see, was my daughter enrolled there? She knocked on doors where she thought maybe her daughter was. None of this went anywhere until about four or five weeks ago when she was more and more assertive. I think she finally reached out to the mayor of Manchester and started talking to the press. And that is when people finally realized, well, wait a minute, this woman's for real. We haven't, we have no idea where this girl has been for 18 months because the people in authority were not listening to the mother because she was a mess. And I don't think she would really disagree with that statement that she was a mess. But that doesn't mean we should tune these people out. And I've been thinking about that because compliance officers and even me have reported, look, we all get a bunch of wackadoo calls. And we all know that most wackadoo calls are probably just wackadoos. But this is a reminder that you have to sit and listen through all of the wackadoos to find the one wackadoo who is actually sincere and truthful and has something worth investigating because if we had taken this woman seriously perhaps this girl harmony we would know where she is today but we have no idea where she is and i have great fears that this case is going to turn out the way that we all think it's probably going to turn out and it's a very grim sobering reminder about the importance of a listen-up culture that we failed here in massachusetts and new hampshire to do that correctly karen woody All right. Well, I'm going to change the tone a little bit. Mine is much more lighthearted. In fact, I will say the last time I did those shouts and rants, I shouted out to the travel industry and the people who are helping. But I realized that was an aberration from my usual shout out to some sort of pop culture or recommendation. So I've co-opted shouts and rants somewhat to be Woody's pop culture 
Rex. So I'm going back to that today because my recommendation this week and my shout out is to this fantastic show that I've only now uh, discovered, even though it's been on the air, I think for a while, but I learned that it might be coming out with the fifth season. And that is the French uh, comedy called Call My Agent. It's a fantastic show. You have to be willing to read the subtitles in French, which I uh, suggest, I think, is makes you smarter. You both learn French and you read while watching television. So it's a win all around. But it's a lovely show. It's hysterical. And I'm looking forward to the fifth season that is apparently coming out next year or sometime soon. Um, but again, it's all about sort of the Parisian side of, it's like an entourage-ish, but not really. But it's the Parisian side of talent agency and the movie industry. And so there are a lot of very funny, high-profile um, guests on it. And so I would recommend it as a lighthearted uh, way to avoid thinking about some of these heavier things at the end of the day. So I'm going to give a shout out. Um, first of all, I should preface this that Everything Compliance Gang has really uh, led many efforts in pop culture. Karen Woody started early Emmy Buzz uh, with Ted Lasso. Matt Kelly has started a very early 2023 Oscar buzz for Paul Rudd in Ant-Man 3 and an earlier. Well, I want to give, not start some uh, Oscar buzz, but I want to add to some Oscar buzz for the Joel Cohen version, movie version of the Shakespeare play Macbeth. I think both Denzel Washington and um, uh, his wife, um, Frances McDormand, should both uh, receive Oscars. But I want to focus on Catherine Hunter. Catherine Hunter played Frances three McDermott. roles, four roles, actually, in the play. And she played the Twisted Sisters or the Three Witches. And Catherine Hunter is a fabulous performance artist from the United Kingdom. She played the role using her body as much as her language. And it was fabulous. She was in uh, one of the very first scenes where she, as the sister, gives a prophecy to Macbeth, which leads him down the, the road to, to wreck and ruin. But I want to shout out to Catherine Hunter. I hope she gets an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor or Actress. Uh, if you haven't seen the play, uh, see it. It's a fabulous interpretation by Joel Cohen uh, as well. So, Jay Rosen, you want to close us out on shout outs and rants? I want to clean up and I want to give a shout out to Boston Red Sox great slugger, David Big Papi Ortiz. He's on the Hall of Fame ballot for the first time ever. In Boston's own, Dan Shaughnessy did not include Big Papi on the list of his choices for the Hall of Fame. David Ortiz says, you know, Dan Shaughnessy's been an a-hole to everybody. So what can I tell you? It's not a surprise for me. It's not a surprise for you. Now, he didn't vote for me. So what can I do? I mean, seriously, there's not going to be anything that I can do that this one guy didn't vote for you. I can't stop it. And there's nothing you can do about it. So here's a big poppy taking a healthy attitude towards a little criticism from a sports writer. And let's hope he gets into the Hall of Fame in 2022. Back to you, Tom. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a fabulous episode. Uh, thanks for everyone's uh, great cultural references. Thanks for all the insights into Activision and Microsoft. If you're listening, uh, everyone on this podcast has an email that will be listed in the show notes. If you need some help, let us know.
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. I hope you enjoyed our special meatloaf tribute section. Hope you'll join us again in our next episode as well. I'd like to also ask you to take a listen to a special podcast series which premiered this week, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial, we take a deep dive into the Enron Trial, the participants, the defendants, the prosecution, the testimony, the lawyers, in a way that has not been done previously. Last year was the 20th anniversary of the collapse of Enron, and Lauren and I wanted to do a podcast series which focused on the trial, which is having its 15th uh, anniversary. So check out the trial of the century, the Enron trial on the Compliance Podcast Network, iTunes, Spotify, Apple, uh, JD Super, or wherever you listen to your podcast. The trial of the century, the Enron trial, and Compliance into the Weeds are productions of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.